Hey, it's Seeking Plum. A few episodes ago, I mentioned that I'm reading the book The Accidental Universe by Alan Lightman. I am thoroughly enjoying the journey that he's taking the reader on, me on. He touches on a lot of topics that I find really interesting, and I think that the reason he can do this is because he's been meeting with a unique group of individuals to have discussions on a regular basis, or at least he was when he was writing this book. They were scientists, philosophers, persons of faith, scientists who were also persons of faith, etc. Something I had been wondering about, but his book has helped me better focus those thoughts, is whether it's really an either-or when it comes to faith or science. With respect to our origin, I've been thinking that although there tends to be this push and pull between the two sides, that I don't think there's ever going to be one side quote, winning out. And I'd like to think that we can coexist. As Lightman was pointing out that there are a lot of philosophical questions that can't be answered by science, I started realizing that, well, maybe science and faith are more interwoven than we would care to admit or like to think. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it becomes a problem when one decides to tell the other that it can't exist, that it has no place. But that's not what I decided I wanted to talk about today. When I was young, I wanted to be an astronaut. And when I realized that wasn't possible, well, then I wanted to be a jet fighter pilot. I didn't want to blow anything up. I just wanted to fly those jets. Anyway, I wanted to be in the sky. I wanted to be close to the stars and the moon. Now I settle for looking at pictures of them. There's some information in this one essay called The Gargantuan Universe that blew my mind. Okay, so Isaac Newton was the first one in the 1600s to determine the distance to the stars, roughly speaking, that is. In 1912, Henrietta Leavitt, an astronomer from Harvard College Observatory, developed a new method. Certain stars called Cepheids, well, they oscillate in their brightness. Those cycle times are closely related to the intrinsic luminosities. So more luminous stars have longer cycle times. Knowing this information, you can determine how far away they are. Now from what I gather, not all stars are this way, just Cepheids. But there's enough of them to help determine the size of our galaxy. Now because these distances and these sizes were so huge, astronomers had to come up with a new size of distance called the light year. And as we know, that's the distance that light travels in a year, which is six trillion miles. Now that I didn't know. So using light years in our Milky Way galaxy, the closest stars are several light years away. But the Milky Way galaxy measured in light years is 100,000 light years in diameter. Just think of that, six trillion times 100,000. That's how many miles. I don't even know if I want to think about how many zeros that is. Lightman puts it this way. In other words, it takes a ray of light 100,000 years to travel from one side of the Milky Way to the other. That's just our galaxy in the entire universe. And how many galaxies are there? According to Henrietta Leavitt's method, there are the average distance between galaxies is roughly 20 galactic diameters or 2 million light years. Again, just for scale, that's 2 million times 6 trillion miles. 
I'm sorry, I can't even begin to think how many miles that is. When I try to scale it down and I think about miles we walk or marathon miles and then try to blow that up into trillions, mind-blowing. Now here's something else that made me say, wow, just to ponder on the implications of this, just wow. I know I keep saying that, but wow. Oh, before I get there, so light travels 186,000 miles per second. So if it's 186,000 miles away, we see it as it appeared one second earlier. At 1,860,000 miles away, we see it as it appeared 10 seconds earlier. For extremely distant objects, we see them as they were millions and billions of years in the past. Okay, so since the late 1920s, we've known that the universe is expanding and thinning out and cooling as it goes. Now, to be honest, I've always been curious how we knew this and why we thought this. So using Henrietta Leavitt's method to measure the distance of stars, they've been able to to approximate when the Big Bang happened, approximately 13.7 billion years ago. But this is what I find more interesting. No matter how big our telescopes are, we can't see beyond the distance light has traveled since the Big Bang. There's like this giant sphere, this maximum distance we can see. The universe could extend far beyond that, but light hasn't traveled to us yet. But apparently, the observable universe, that giant sphere, gets larger every day. That's really cool to me when I think about how far-reaching our ability to be able to see. Not to mention, will we be able to develop technology that can grasp light sooner than we can now? Okay, so this is the topic that I was meaning to get to. In March 2009, NASA launched a spacecraft called Kepler with the mission to search for planets orbiting in the habitable zone of other stars. This habitable zone is where water won't freeze and it won't boil. For many reasons, biologists and chemists believe that liquid water is required for life, even if that life is very different than what we have here on Earth. Now that dozens of candidates for such planets have been found, they can make a rough preliminary estimate that maybe 3% of all stars are accompanied by life-sustaining planets. There were two numbers that I found very interesting. Lightman writes, the totality of living matter on Earth, not only humans, but all animals, plants, bacteria, and pond scum, makes up about 0.0000001% of the mass of the planet. Okay, if you thought that number was crazy, <laughs> you better put your seatbelt on. Then Lightman writes, Combining this figure with the results from the Kepler spacecraft and assuming that all life-sustaining planets do indeed have life, we can conclude that the fraction of stuff in the visible universe that exists in living form is something like, I'm not even going to read all these zeros, it's a zero point and a whole bunch of zeros, one percent, or one millionth of one billionth of one percent. For those curious, I counted it's 0.14 zeros and a one. Lightman then writes, If some cosmic intelligence created the universe, life would seem to be only an afterthought. And if life emerged by random processes, 
Vast amounts of lifeless material were needed for each particle of life. Such findings cannot help but bear upon the question of our significance in the universe. I don't know about you, but when I hear about things like this, the science, how large our universe is and how big it's continuing to grow, or at least our perspective, our ability to see how big it is, the things we haven't learned yet, the things we know we have yet to learn, I am in awe and wonder at how magnificent this place is and how trivial and small I am and my problems are. Science, nature, they always make me appreciate life more.